It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yours in Murder contains descriptions of violence, adult themes, foul language, and input from cats. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Yours in Murder. I'm your host, Rebecca, and with me is my sister, Rachel, and my cat, who's in the hamper. Of course he's in the hamper. Toss him in the washing machine. It'll be great. No, it probably wouldn't. I would be dead. Yeah, I locked my dogs out of the room I record in, and I'm assuming they're miffed, but they're so miffed they decided to go sulk by tucking themselves in in my bed. I mean, sometimes I'm so angry that I take a nap. I think that's my dog's reaction to most things. It's their entire set of problem-solving skills. If whining at it doesn't work, we nap. That's about my set of problem-solving skills, too. So, my friends, it's the month of Halloween. I've been celebrating Halloween ever since the 4th of July was over, but now it's official. Okay, so if you're playing the yours and murder drinking game, you take a shot every time she says the word spoopy. I actually haven't said it yet, I think, this year on the podcast, so it's going to be pretty spoopy. If you're a longtime listener, you know Rebecca is the basicest bitch that did ever basic. Oh my god, but I don't like pumpkin spice in my latte. My coffee is coffee. My pumpkin spice is just candles, bagels, chai, cream cheese. Donuts. Ooh, yeah, those are good. For our listeners... Dunkin' Donuts has apple cider donuts. They're not as good as the ones from the orchards, but if you can't get to an orchard, it's a good second. Woohoo! So happy fall, y'all. Oh my god, you're so white. I have a sign that says that. It's plaid. Anyway, so we tend to do different sort of things in the month of October, but unlike our March Women series that's normally planned out every year we're like huh it's october what we the hell planned, are we doing now we planned the first year remember when we did two axe murders a week because we were really ambitious remember back then when there was hope and ambition and all of those good things 
Yeah, so this October, we're going to actually do a three-part episode. I think it's the first three-parter we've ever done. Oh, no. Remember, we did um, three on 9-11. We did three on the Manson family, I think. We did three or four on the Golden State Killer. All right. This is the first three-parter that I've ever written because I have a very short attention span. So, um, we are going to be talking about the Jeffrey McDonald case for most of October, and then Rachel's coming up with something for the last week that's probably going to be a little spoopy, so there's always that to look forward to. Yeah, Rachel is doing something hopefully paranormal, because after doing three parts, Rebecca won't be able to stop me this year. Just so you know, I have a warning here, and this will span for, you know, the next two episodes as well, since we will be discussing the exact same case. So this episode, and the next two, discusses the murder of children, so ye be warned. And there is also, in this episode only, a brief mention of suicide, but it does not play a large role in this case. So, let's get going. So Rachel, what do you think of when I say the 1970s, other than bell-bottoms? Disco? Afros? Ted Bundy? Thank you, that's where I was going. You see, the 1970s is often considered somewhat of a golden age of serial killers in the United States. And now that's not golden age as like, they were the best serial killers, but golden is in like, damn, there was a lot of them. Just to name a few. These were ones that all were just off the top of my head. You have Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Golden State Killer, the Hillside Strangler, Son of Sam, the Zodiac Killer, BTK, Edmund Kemper. All were active during the decade of the 70s. The Manson family missed the decade by a couple months. I mean, they were August 69. But the Manson family murders did have a big effect on how people perceived murderers, and different counterculture movements in this era. So we discussed this in detail in our episodes on Charles Manson. But the short version, it began a fear of satanic cults, murderers, and counterculture movements. That kind of spread through the 1970s and peaked in the satanic panic of the 1980s. So... The Jeffrey McDonald case is not as famous as a lot of these other 1970s cases, you know, because he didn't go on a killing spree across several states or write taunting letters to the police. It's still a pretty famous case. I know multiple people that we're friends with have covered it. But it's not Ted Bundy famous. It is not Ted Bundy famous. They don't make as many movies about it. They've made movies about it, I believe. If Zac Efron hasn't played you, you're not as famous. Okay, look, I love Zac Efron, so please do not take the name of Zac Efron in vain. So what Jeffrey McDonald did do was kill his wife, two young daughters, and unborn child, then create a story playing on the fear of cults and Satanism that was prevalent at the time as per Manson murders, and then proclaim his innocence in a long, drawn-out court battle. However, the McDonald's case does illustrate the point that there is no such thing as a perfect crime. You know what makes me very angry? Like, I look like a cat with all the hair on its back hunched up. You literally look like that all the time, so I don't know. Yeah, but more than usual, when people say shit like, I watch a lot of CSI. They won't find your body. Oh, honey. It's okay. I watch a lot of CSI the way that people, like, watch football. 
with a mouthful of food yelling suggestions at the screen. I mean, if they had the technology that CSI seems to think exists, everything would be solved. You do not do DNA analysis out of the trunk of your car. FYI. I've been watching Bones. I actually really like that one, and I think it's more accurate than some of the others. Oh, I have a phone number that you need to call and talk to someone. Okay, I like Bones at least. It's a good show. It's a good show. But I know somebody who actually does that job, and she's not a fan. Anyway, basically, no matter how smart or careful you are, Lucard's principle, which is the basis of forensic science, states that every interaction leaves a trace. And if you don't believe this, use glitter ones. Now, these traces aren't always findable or usable, but they are there. In the McDonald case, it was these small traces that allowed investigators and scientists to not only point the finger at Jeffrey McDonald, but to put together an in-depth sequence of events, even though McDonald thought that he had tied up all the loose ends. He thought he was a smart cookie. He was like an off-brand Oreo. Hey, it depends. Is he like... A good generic brand Oreo or like the ones you get at the dollar store? I'm talking about the ones that you pull it apart to eat the icing inside and it's powder. That's the type of cookie this man is. So we're going to kind of give some background on this not-so-excellent cookie named Jeffrey McDonald. Jeffrey McDonald was born on October 12th, 1943 in Jamaica, Queens, New York City. He was the second of three children born to Robert and Dorothy McDonald, just for clarity's sake, in case anyone listens to our episodes and is like, huh, I want to read about that. A lot of places will refer to him as Jeffrey Robert McDonald, but Robert was not a middle name that he was given at birth. It was his confirmation name that he took when he was confirmed into the church. So I'm not sure if he ever actually got his name legally changed to where Robert was a part of it, or if he just kind of adopted it without any legal precedent, but it's a name that he used for the rest of his life. I mean, usually 90% of the time you don't legally need to use your middle name. That's true, but he signed everything like Jeffrey R. McDonald. So they were Catholic? I don't know. It doesn't say. Do other churches do confirmation names? Lots of religions do confirmation names, just a lot of them choose what's already your middle name. Oh. However, Robert was his father's name, and I believe that they were of Scottish descent, hence the Mac Donald, it's M-A-C Donald. So there is a high number of Catholic Scots families. Anyway, but just so you know, if you're reading, you're like, huh, are these different people? I'm not sure if you'd actually think that, but... Just to clarify, it had it on an official-looking website, so I thought I'd give you that tidbit of information. So, the McDonald's raised their children on Long Island, and Jeffrey attended Potshog High School, where he earned excellent grades, became captain of the football team, was senior class president, and was voted most popular and most likely to succeed. While in high school, Jeffrey McDonald also began a relationship with Colette Stevenson, who was in his class. Now, Colette Stevenson was a few months older than Jeffrey. She was born on May 10th, 1943 in Manhattan to Mildred and Edward Stevenson, who were restaurant proprietors. Were they French? No, I don't think they were French. I think they just thought it was a pretty name. But I can't tell you how many times I started to write her name and accidentally wrote Cosette. 
from Les Miserables. But her name is Colette, and Colette was the second child born to the Stevensons. The first, her brother Bob, was four years older than her. And in 1955, when Colette was 11, her father committed suicide by hanging himself in the family garage. Two years later, her widowed mother Mildred met Alfred Kassab. Kassab was from Canada and had served during World War II as a British intelligence agent, parachuting behind German lines at least six times. So, a little bit of a badass. Is there any more World War II era names than Mildred and Alfred? Well, actually, when you think of like the American or British World War II era, yeah, sure. But um, Alfred Kassab was actually of Syrian and Egyptian descent. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just, I, I think Mildred is about the most World War II name I can think of. Yeah, I can't remember what his middle name was, but I read it and I'm like, huh. And then I looked into it a little more. But so Kassab's first wife and infant child were killed in London during the Blitz. So after the war, he moved to New York City, where he eventually met Mildred Stevenson. And the two hit it off and were married shortly afterward. And Kassab was a doting stepfather and considered Colette and Bob to be his own children. The family moved to Long Island, which is how Colette attended Potchog High School, which is where she met Jeffrey McDonald. Okay, so to sum up Colette's family, there's a lot of grief and issues. But it seems like they ha still had as happy of a family as you can expect. Yeah, like, um... But there there was, there was some tragedy in her background. There was, but it's not like she was missing a father figure. Kassab really took over that role. And so, you know, he wasn't her dad, but he was that loving parental figure for... Yeah. But, I mean, he had a lot of sadness in his background, too. But that, it, it sounds like good things happened. Yes. And actually, um, Alfred Kassab is going to play a pretty major role in the next two episodes because he fights for the truth no matter what it says. I like him. Uh, yeah, so do I. I kind of saw his picture and I'm like, I want to have a cup of coffee with this guy, which is a real shame because he died the year I was born. Oh, well, look what you did. I know. So after high school, McDonald got a scholarship to attend Princeton. While he was in school, Jeffrey and Colette continued their relationship, and Colette discovered she was pregnant in 1963. So the two married on September 14th of the same year. Their first daughter, Kimberly, was born on April 18th, 1964. Later that year, the family moved to Chicago, Illinois, for Jeffrey to attend Northwestern University Medical School. Uh, for anybody still playing the drinking game, you have to finish your drink, because we said Chicago. Are there actually rules to this drinking game? Yeah, I'm making them up as we go. Oh, good. Um, the couple's second daughter, Kristen, was born on May 8, 1967. In 1968, McDonald graduated from medical school and the family moved back to New York City for him to complete his residency at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. On July 1st, 1969, Jeffrey McDonald joined the United States Army. He reported to Fort Sam Houston Army Medical School in San Antonio, Texas, where he underwent a six-week orientation. Then, McDonald took a short leave to see his family before heading to Fort Benning for a three-week jump school, which is a basic paratrooper certification. Once he had finished that, he was assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 
He held the rank of captain and was assigned as a group surgeon to the 6th Special Forces Group. For those who listened to our episode on Marisek and got to hear all about distinctions, that is Special Forces capitalized. So he was working with the Green Berets. I don't remember all the distinctions. Special Forces lowercase are things like the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers. If it is capital S, capital F, Special Forces, it's Green Beret. So McDonald arrived at Fort Bragg in late October 1969 and settled into officers' housing, which was a garden apartment at 544 Castle Drive. Shortly afterwards, Kassab drove Colette and the children to North Carolina to join him. Did she not drive, or...? I think they only had one car. Oh, makes sense. That Jeffrey McDonald probably had, so her stepfather. That, and would you want to drive from New York City to North Carolina with two children by yourself? I don't want children, so no. So for all appearances, the McDonalds seemed to be a happy, well-functioning family at this point. In addition to his work in the Army, Jeffrey began moonlighting at a civilian hospital to make extra money. When you say moonlighting, it sounds like you're about to tell me he's stripping on the weekends, not working extra shifts as a doctor. Yeah, no, he was working in an ER at a civilian hospital. <laughs> so he seemed to be doing well financially and even bought Kristen and Kimberly a pony for Christmas that year. First of all, they live in an apartment. <laughs> I am so angry because I still don't have my pony. Mom got a dog that's basically a pony. Like, if we got one of those miniature ponies, you know, the ones that are like the size of a German Shepherd? That could fit in the backyard. Well, the McDonald kids got an actual pony, and it was housed somewhere near them in Fort Bragg, because obviously it was not staying in their garden apartment. So they seemed to, you know, have everything going pretty swell. And soon after moving to North Carolina, it became clear that Colette was pregnant again. They found out that they would soon be welcoming a baby boy to their family. And in preparation, Colette enrolled in a child psychology night class at a local college. However, things were not as fine and dandy as they seemed. You see, Jeffrey was not being faithful to Colette and hadn't been for a few years. He was often away on training missions, and it was during these absences that he became involved with no less then 15 different women. I am judging him. Hard. Years later, in an interview for Vanity Fair, McDonald said, quote, I did step out on Colette, none of which I am proud of. I don't think they were real girlfriends. They were one-night stands. I never had a love affair with anyone where we planned weekends away or divorce. I wore my wedding ring. It was the temper of the times. I like women, and I wasn't thinking of the consequences. I had high testosterone. Among guys around me and people in medical school and the service, I wasn't doing anything unusual. It was 68, 70, and a lot of things were exploding. Like my mind. How can you justify that to yourself? It's making my mind go boom. The world was changing in 68 to 70. Like we've said before, go back to our first Manson family episode. No, but the world was changing and not in like a, hey, it's cool to cheat on your wife kind of way. In a, hey, black people are people kind of way. But that doesn't mean you cheat on your wife. That and I like, he's like, but I wore my wedding ring. It's fine. Reading this, you know what it made me think of? In Blues Brothers, when Carrie Fisher 
confronts them in the sewer. And John Belushi is like down on his knees begging her and coming up with all of these excuses like I had a flat tire and this and that. Like all these reasons he didn't make it to their wedding. And he just starts spouting them off one after another. That's what this reminds me of. I always hated how they made her accept him back. Like, as a plot point, and I'm like, no. Carrie Fisher was sleeping with Harrison Ford about then, so no, she wouldn't have stayed Anyway, with that John wasn't Belushi. the point. <laughs> so, if that shitty attempt at justifying his actions wasn't enough, he went on to say, quote, I essentially wasn't screwing around. It's not true. Colette had no fears or worries. There weren't any. It wasn't my fault! Yeah, so since he wore his wedding ring and didn't, like, plan a vacation with these women, he was not screwing around. He just, like, fell penis first into someone's vajayjay. But, um, that whole thing that Colette had no fears or worries, not true. You see, Colette, one, was not stupid. Two, she was often in contact with her sister-in-law, Vivian Stevenson. So brother's wife, sister-in-law, right? Not yes. Yeah. And Stevenson remembers Colette complaining of her husband's affairs and one night even telling her, I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. In February of 1970, Jeffrey told Colette that he would be traveling for three months as a physician for the Fort Bragg boxing team. This three months coincided with the last months of what was expected to be a particularly difficult pregnancy. Obviously, Colette was very upset at this news, and she called her mother. And she told her mom that she wanted to come back and live with her and bring her children. And her mom calmed her down and convinced her to at least wait until spring. In addition to his extramarital affairs, Jeffrey had also been working long shifts at the hospital, in addition to his day job. Now, it normally doesn't seem like hard work is a bad thing, um... Growing family, you could definitely use the extra money. But we're talking 24-hour shifts on top of his usual job. Now, the way that the American medical system expects doctors and nurses to, like, push through fatigue for long shifts is absolutely freaking ridiculous. But this went even beyond that. You want to know why doctors work such long shifts compared to, like, nurses and everything? Because, you know, nurses will be first shift, second shift, third shift when, like, hospital doctors are expected to be on call for like 24 hours at a time apparently the person who did the doctor's training program in the u.s was on cocaine funny you should say that i'm just saying i learned about this on caustic soda which if you've listened to this podcast you know is one of my favorites and yeah they're like you know maybe we shouldn't have let the guy who was on coke and never slept make this schedule well mcdonald was not getting enough sleep, and as a result, was becoming even more irritable and difficult to live with. So in order to make up for his lack of Zs, he began taking Escritol, but not as intended. Now, Escritol was a diet pill. Um, it's no longer on the market. Turns out there were side effects and stuff, and it didn't actually help. Um, but it was a diet pill that was intended to be used for a few weeks max. And it contained dextroamphetamine sulfate, which is a central nervous system stimulant. So McDonald was not using this pill to treat obesity, but to keep himself awake, and he used it for far longer than intended. So although 
To most of the world, the McDonald's seemed like a happy family. There was a lot of tension in the house. Colette was pregnant and not happy in her marriage. Her husband was screwing around everywhere, gonna be gone for a long time. He was working way too much, super irritable, and has started a drug dependency. Sounds, you know, happy families. Two days after, Colette talked to her mother about moving in with the children and leaving this all behind. It all came to a head. At 3.42 a.m. on February 17, 1970, dispatchers at Fort Bragg Emergency Services received a call from Jeffrey McDonald. All he said was, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, hurry, before hanging up the phone. That's spish. The military police arrived at the McDonald home within 10 minutes. Due to some miscommunication, they originally believed that they were being called to some domestic dispute. The scene that they encountered was very different than what they expected to find. The front door was closed and locked, and all of the lights in the house were extinguished. After knocking on the front door and receiving no answer, a sergeant went around back, where he found the screen door unlocked and the back door behind it wide open. He entered the house, looked around, and quickly ran to the front door, yelling, Tell them to get Womack ASAP. What's Womack? The Army Medical Center at Fort Bragg. Is it like the name of it, or is it like an acronym? That- oh, no, it's uh, named after... Some guy whose last name was Womack. Okay, because I thought it was like, you know, sometimes like they'll have an acronym and you just kind of like make a word out of it. No, they actually made an acronym out of Womack Army Medical Center. So Womack's acronym is WAMC. (laughs) I love the army. When the sergeant entered the house, he first went to the master bedroom and it immediately became clear that something was horribly wrong. You know, but it... There's signs. Like two people lying on the bedroom floor. You know what? That would be a big sign. Well, Colette was lying on her back and she had been horribly beaten and stabbed repeatedly. One of her eyes was open and a bloody pajama top was laid across her chest. A paring knife was next to her on the floor. And above the McDonald's bed, the word pig had been written in what would later be determined to be Colette's blood. Should we gore warning? I feel like we should gore warning. Next to Colette, Jeffrey lay face down on the floor. He had some injuries, but not even close to the extent of Colette's. He had some cuts and scratches and had been hit on the head and had a single shallow stab wound between his seventh and eighth ribs. Seventh and eighth is the very bottom ones, right? Or how many ribs do you have? Seventh and eighth is around your lung area. Okay, so lungs, but not heart. Yes. I'm trying to count my ribs and it's not working. He was conscious when the MPs arrived and said softly, check on my kids. I heard my kids crying. MPs, for those who aren't in the U.S., are what you call military police. Hence the M and the P. I'm just saying because in like England or Canada, an MP is a member of parliament. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. So an MP is military police. So they did check on Kimberly and Kristen and were shocked at what they saw. The children were dead in their beds, killed by bludgeoning and knife wounds. When the paramedics took McDonald away in the ambulance, he reportedly yelled, let me see my kids over and over. 
Now, the crime scene was gory, and we're going to get into the really yucky details here, so this is your warning. Everything that I'm about to tell you is based off of the information collected by the Criminal Investigation Division, or CID. Now, note that one year after these murders occurred, so in 1971, the Criminal Investigation Division was centralized and the name changed to the Criminal Investigation Command. And since this case spans the time of that change, you might see either or both names used in articles about this case. However, this is peak American military here. Even though the name changed, the acronym didn't. So CID stands for Criminal Investigation Command. So, details. It was determined that Colette McDonald had been stabbed 21 times with an ice pick and 16 times with a knife. Sidebar. I have never in my life seen an ice pick or owned an ice pick. Where do all these criminals get fucking ice picks? Well, back in the day. I mean, like, seriously, how many times do you hear, oh, they were stabbed with an ice pick? When have I ever needed an ice pick? All right, but was it more popular in older, like, decades? I don't know. What do you use an ice pick for? To break it? To chip off ice, Rachel. Well, yeah, but, like, they, it says, before modern refrigerators, ice picks were a ubiquitous, good word, Wikipedia, household tool used for separating and shaping the blocks of ice used in ice boxes. But in the 70s, you would have a modern fridge. I could see maybe having one of those little, um ice crushers that like grandma Hetrick used to have but i don't know they had an ice pick i'm just saying i don't know why everybody has an ice pick when you no longer have an ice box but they did and colette was stabbed 21 times with it and 16 times with a knife now these blows were to her chest and neck She had also been bludgeoned with a club of some sort, and both of her arms were broken, likely trying to protect herself from the blows. The children's deaths were just as gruesome. Five-year-old Kimberly had been hit in the head by something heavy at least six times. One blow crushed her skull, and another shattered her left cheekbone, driving a piece of the bone through the skin below her eye. Five or six, would you be... Where you don't have cartilage anymore, it's full bone, or are kids' heads still kind of soft? Not everything is fused until you're in your 20s. But it's not like a baby's head. Okay, I'm just, because I usually think of kids as being hard-headed little things, because you know they can, like, take a blow and keep going. But I wouldn't know how, if like, six times would be major overkill. Oh, yeah, it was major overkill. Okay. I just didn't know if the Um, cartilage would make it easier or harder to hurt them like that. Well, you see, one blow probably would have been sufficient because it crushed her skull. That's true. But she was hit six times. And so the pathologist determined that these blows alone likely would have killed Kimberly. But while she was near death, she had also been stabbed repeatedly in the neck. These wounds were precise and so close together that they could only estimate the number of times she had been stabbed, and it was decided that it was about eight to ten times. If possible, two-year-old Kristen's death was even worse. One of her fingers was cut to the bone, indicating that she was likely awake when attacked and held up her hand to defend herself. But she was just a toddler and no match against her assailant. 
Kristen was stabbed a total of 33 times. With a knife, she was stabbed 12 times in the back, four times in the chest, and once in the neck. Then, she was stabbed 15 more times in the chest with an ice pick. The only survivor, Jeffrey McDonald, came out relatively unscathed in comparison to his family's gruesome injuries. He had superficial scratches on his face and arms and a mild concussion. His worst wound was a partially collapsed lung. The stab wound, which was between his 7th and 8th ribs, was 5 eighths of an inch deep, just deep enough to pierce the lung. However, it was clean and precise enough that the lung was easily reinflated and McDonald was quickly on the way to recovery. I'm suspicious because he's a doctor and would know that. Well, this leads to the question that people have been arguing about for the past 50 years. What the hell happened that night? So we're going to finish out today's episode with Jeffrey McDonald's account of what happened. Take this with some salt, my friends. But he's a lying liar who lies through his lie hole. But it's important to know what he says happened. So okay. according to McDonald's... Proceed with his lies. According to McDonald, the night began pretty normally. After leaving work at the base hospital, he took Kimberly and Kristen to see the pony that he got them for Christmas. After letting the girls spend some time with their pet, they returned home. Jeffrey showered and changed into a set of blue pajamas before having dinner with Colette and the girls. Dinner was a pretty quick affair since Colette attended her child psychology class that evening. After Colette left, Jeffrey put two-year-old Kristen to bed. Shortly afterward, he nodded off in front of the TV, but was awakened about an hour later when Kimberly asked if she could watch Laughing, which was her favorite TV program. The pair watched the program, and then he put Kimberly to bed. Forty minutes later, Colette returned home, and they had liqueurs and watched television until about 11, when Colette headed for bed. Jeffrey watched The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and then continued reading a book that he was partway through. He put the book down when he heard Kristen crying. He soothed his daughter and put her back to bed. He finished the book around 2 a.m., washed up the dinner dishes, and then headed to bed himself. In the master bedroom, he found that Kristen had crawled into bed with Colette and had wet his side of the bed. So he carried Kristen to her own room, and not wanting to wake Colette to change the sheets, he grabbed a blanket and slept on the couch. McDonald said that he was awoken sometime later by screaming. He opened his eyes and saw four people standing over him. A black man in a fatigue jacket with E6 sergeant stripes on the sleeve, two white men, and a white woman. The woman wore a floppy hat over what McDonald described as stringy blonde hair. She held a candle in front of her face and chanted, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. This is my favorite part of the story, because if he's making this up, what the fuck? Well, the black man hit McDonald over the head with a club, and somebody stabbed him in the right side of his chest with an ice pick. As he struggled against his attackers, his pajama top was pulled over his head and onto his wrists. He tried to use it to fend off his attackers. However, eventually they overpowered him and knocked him unconscious as he tried to run to his children's bedrooms. 
When McDonald next awoke, he said that the attackers were gone. He made his way into the master bedroom where he found Colette lying dead. He pulled the knife from her chest and began administering CPR. Rachel, what's wrong with that sentence? You never take the knife out. You never take the knife out. That's what killed Steve Irwin was he pulled the stainray stainer out of his chest. Otherwise, it plugs the wound and it's going to hurt like hell, but you're probably going to be better. I'm holding, like, my chest, like, right under my boob in case that would help, apparently. Which would do circulation, which would start pumping blood out of her body. I mean, I could give him, you know, pulling the knife out of his wife's chest if he was absolutely panicking. But he would then, he's a doctor, he would know to not start CPR. Not just that, but he was an emergency room doctor. This is the sort of situation he is trained for. He should definitely be better in an emergency then, but it is different when it's your own family. Unless you're a stage manager and then they burn all the emotions out of you. It's fine. Great, but I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one who saw the problem with that sentence. Soon enough, he realized CPR was- No shit! Maybe it was the dozens of stab wounds. I don't know. So he covered his wife's partially naked chest with his pajama top and then rushed to check on the children. Now, this might just be nitpicky, but wouldn't most parents check on the children first? Just a thought. I know, it's nitpicky as hell of me to say that, but it just feels like an instinct. It's true, but, like, it just depends on, I mean, even if he was supposed to be calm in an emergency, sometimes in an emergency you will do things that are completely irrational, but feel totally rational to you at the time. Or he's a liar. I mean, that could be it too. But like in an emergency, sometimes you'll find like there's something that to you is really, really important all of a sudden. And then when you like snap out of that mode, you're like, oh my God, that didn't matter at all. You know? Yeah. Well, obviously, since I had previously described the crime scene, you know what he found in his children's room. So he found them dead and he called 911 and then returned to the master bedroom where the MPs found him shortly afterward. So he had already gone to check on his children that he then asked the MPs to check on and asked about them repeatedly. I know the devil has enough advocates, but blood loss can make you do dumb things. Oh, he didn't lose much blood at all. Anyway, that's all that we're really going to go into on that in this episode. But does that story seem far-fetched? Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Didn't they find a uh, magazine about the Manson family murders in his house? They did. We're going to talk about that next week. So, um, yeah, this seemed pretty sketchy to a lot of other people, too. So next week, we're going to go more in-depth and talk about the inconsistencies between what he said happened and what we know actually happened. We're going to talk about the first of many court proceedings in this case. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. It depends on how much we talk about that. We might talk a little bit of forensics. So we all have something to look forward to. And of course, we're going to talk about acid is groovy, kill the pigs. So if you want to tell us, um, you know, I don't even have anything clever to say this time. You know what? It's like, what, week 563 of quarantine? My brain is fried. So if your pets have a Halloween costume, you should probably send us a picture at yoursandmurderpod at gmail.com. Or post it in our Facebook discussion group. 
or on our Facebook page and we'll share it with people because really, we all just really need pets and Halloween costumes. Bonus points if you have wiener dogs. So um, our Facebook and our Twitter are both Yours in Murder. We also have a webpage at yoursinmurder.net where I eventually get up the sources for each of our cases. Sort of like I eventually check the Twitter. So uh, cases like this that are multiple parts, I normally post when they're all done because I use the same sources for all of the parts. So um, on that webpage, yoursinmurder.net, there's also a part where if you fancy donating money, there are links to our Patreon and our PayPal Uh, Your financial support is always appreciated. If you're not able to support us financially, we get it. We're broke, too. Um, I spent all my money at Aldi. (laughs) She does this every single week. If you want to help us out without spending your hard-earned cash, there are ways to do that. You can always like us on Facebook. You can rate us and review us on your favorite podcatcher. Unless you're one of the guys that says we're racist against white people, even though I is a white people, that guy's not allowed to review anymore. It's okay, because like three other people have told us we're boring, and I'm like, bitch, I'm hilarious. Maybe you shouldn't call listeners bitches. (laughs) It's a term of endearment. Also, I am hilarious. So, uh, you can rate it. God damn it, Rachel, where was I? (laughs) I don't know. If you want to support us without spending your hard-earned money, there are ways you can do that. You can like us on Facebook. You can rate us and review us on your favorite podcatcher. Or you can just share our podcast with a friend. Hopefully a friend you like. Don't share us with your enemies, please. You know how the yours and murder people have murderinos and then there's like other names for different... What are you talking about? We don't have murderinos. My favorite murder has murderinos. Other people have names for their fans. Our fans can be bitches. We're not doing that. So until next time, when we continue the Jeffrey McDonald case, thanks for listening. And we are yours in murder.